Welcome to an emergency edition of The Grumpy Strategist. I'm Michael Shoebridge, and I'm here with my Strategic Analysis Australia colleague, Marcus Hellyer. Marcus, hello. Hello. Yes, I think today's episode is an urgent intervention episode of The Grumpy Strategist, and I think there will be quite a lot of grumping going on. Yes, I haven't got a sound effect, but you know, the dive, red alert, dive. red alert. The government and the Department of Defence have got a proposed new bill that they want to get into law rapidly called the Defence Trade Controls Amendment Bill 2023. And submissions about what's in this bill close the 17th of November. Yes, there was a vanishingly small window of opportunity to make a submission on this proposed bill. I think submissions opened. Last week and closed this week. Yeah, so there were eight working days. And there's 44 pages in what is, I think, amusingly called the explanatory memorandum for the bill. Yes, I I would have to say that is one of the least accurate descriptions I have ever seen. Uh, It is the explains nothing, though there is one very clear paragraph in there that we will get to. Now, why does this matter and why are we doing an emergency podcast? Well, the simple answer is this legislation controls everything about how companies and researchers go about researching, sharing information, cooperating and producing items of military use and things that have a dual commercial and potential military use. And the things that are controlled on the current list under the current version of this law are quite extensive. So, Marcus, for the people that haven't immersed themselves in this bill and the the list What kinds of things are are on the list already? Well, so the the list is the Defence and Strategic Goods list, the DSGL. And this is a list of military items that uh, you can't export without a permit. But there is also a second chunk to that list, an even longer chunk, which is so-called dual-use items. So things that are used in everyday civilian usage, but potentially also have a military usage. So, and the export of these things is controlled. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Australia has a robust export. Uh, regime. But so what this bill does is two things. So first of all, it, quote, removes the requirement to obtain a permit for supplies of certain DSGL goods and technology and the provision of certain DSGL services to the United Kingdom or the US. So in a sense, you might say this is AUKUS nirvana. There are now no restrictions around the exchange of information and things with the US and the UK. Wow, well that is that's fantastic, isn't it? Isn't that this harmonization of the three countries ecosystems that the bureaucrats have been pursuing? So this this looks like victory. What's what's yes, the problem that comes yes, with this? But it also regulates the supply of certain goods or services to any other country or nationals of any other country, including within Australia and including what happens to those goods or information once they leave Australia. So you, you sort of you go, but isn't that a good thing? Well, sort of, because to get back to your original question, what is actually on the DSGL list. Well, certainly there's really scary things like guided weapons and submarines and those sorts of things. Military aircraft. But there's just very basic stuff on there, like 
Rifles. So any rifle made since I think 1938 is on that list. Ooh. So if you take the legislation at its word, an Australian commits a crime if they provide DSGL services in the form of assistance, including training, to foreign persons, whether in Australia or abroad, in the design, development, engineering, manufacture, production, assembly, testing, repair, maintenance, modification, operation, etc., etc., of DSGL goods and technology without a permit. So if we actually follow this, if an Australian provides information or training to a, another national, not a, a US or UK national, on how to maintain a rifle, Ooh. how to repair a rifle, they have now broken the law. So presumably, if you're an Olympic shooting coach and you're Australian, but you happen to want to coach the Japanese team, you'll need a permit. Well, that's a good question. And, and that's, I think, what everybody is wondering, because in places it says it regulates the supply of certain military yeah, dual-use technology. services as well. But, but then the word certain disappears. Mm. So does it now by default include everything on that list or is there a kind of mini list of the really important stuff like Ooh. nuclear powered submarines and so there are just so many questions around this but if if you're an Australian or an Australian company you would be very hesitant to work with anybody who is not Australian, US or UK Ooh. because the likelihood of sharing something uh, is very high. Well, so here's an interesting question then. You work for a company called Talas. You don't, but let's say person X, our good friend Ralph, works for Talas here in Australia and he's or she has been developing sonar, cooperating with people back in a place called France. Well, presumably that's that's bad news now. So it's permit time. Well, yeah. And you might go, well, sonar's a high tech. You know, you want to protect that. You go, okay. But Talas also makes explosives. Ooh. You know, yeah. And explosives are on the list. So does that mean a, a, a Tullus employee in Australia can't work with a Tullus employee who's French on basic explosives? Well, well they also so, make control systems uh, that have military and civilian dual use. So they're, they're doing air traffic control systems uh, for defence and for the civil authorities here in Australia. They make control systems for transport systems. You just think to yourself, where are the boundaries on this? But if I could just... We've had controls for a long time. The big new thing here, though, is Australia has never had the strict and deeply problematic ITAR system operating domestically. And to me, that's what this is actually doing. It's saying, because of AUKUS, we are now going to live in the US ITAR world. Okay, so ITAR is the US International Traffic in Arms Regulation. Yeah. So that is, many people would argue, the dead hand sitting on top of US innovation. And there are many, many people, including in the US, who say one of the biggest problems the US is facing in terms of innovation is the impact of ITAR. But what's really interesting is probably the most, the clearest passage in this rather opaque explanatory memorandum says, the purpose of this bill is to strengthen Australia's export control framework in order to establish an export control regime that is comparable to the one the United States administers. So essentially what we've consciously done is decided to take a system that pretty much everybody says is broken, including 
the people who live inside that Ooh, system. The owners of the system. And we're going to adopt it. So what we seem to be saying is the US arms control system is broken, but if we somehow get inside it by completely copying it, it'll be okay. The only issue is, is the price we have to pay is we can't really work with anybody else. Well, one thing immediately out of this is the idea that Japan or South Korea might be in AUKUS has been raised. And before this, I had said, well, we should make sure AUKUS is working and has delivered some things first before we try and expand the members. But frankly, with this new approach to our law around regulation of who we can and can't work with and who needs a permit to have a conversation or inadvertently be at a conference where there's a Japanese colleague or a South Korean colleague, the case for having these close partners join AUKUS immediately seems to me to be made. But why would the South Koreans do it? They're well, going, we've got this great export industry. They're probably not industry. that stupid, are they? <laughs> you know, we're exporting all kinds of stuff around the world. We want to take your stupid system. Yeah, well, look, here's a funny thought. So there's a company called Boeing Australia, and they've developed something that the Australian Defence Organisation and the current government, in fact, the previous government, celebrate as a wonderful Agile, fast success. It's something called Ghost Bat. It's a small, uncrewed aerial vehicle. It was originally called Loyal Wingman. Quite large, but, you know. Well, yeah. But it's, it was developed in Australia by Boeing deliberately to avoid what I think they themselves called ITAR entanglement, contamination with ITAR controls, which would limit cooperation that would not enable that rapid development. So even a big US defense prime like Boeing saw the need to escape the dead hand of ITAR to do something agile, innovative and fast. Yes. Well, I know some of our listeners might be saying, well, Marcus and Michael are just two grumpy old guys who don't know what they're talking about. So I'll quote somebody who actually does know what they're talking about. This is Bill Greenwald, former US Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy and one of America's foremost experts on arms export laws and regulations. So he is actually a world expert Ooh, on this subject. An acknowledged world expert, yes. You know, has managed, run this system and has since written many, many things saying how this system is broken and in fact has argued very explicitly if you want AUKUS to work, you actually have to reform the US arms control. Well, uh, so I, I would system, think if not copy it. If this if this bill gets reviewed by our parliament, they need to get this other bill, Bill Greenwald, in to talk talk to them. Yes, and here's what he'll say. Quote it looks like Australia just gave up its sovereignty and got nothing for it. It appears that the Australians adopted the US export control system lock, stock and barrel. And everything I wrote about the eight deadly sins of ITAR will now apply to Australian innovation. I think they just put themselves back 50 years. That's quoting from a piece by Colin Clark. So, And we'll put a link to that in the podcast. And we'll put links also to the so-called explanatory memorandum. So the eight so, deadly so this sins. Is, this is a guy from an, who understands the system, has run the system, has basically said this is a really, really dumb thing to do. Ooh. So what are the eight deadly sins in ITAR, which will now become shared sins that Australia is committing? Okay, so, well, the eight deadly sins. So Bill Greenwald wrote these in a piece published by the, the U.S., Study Centre at the University of Sydney. And, and I'd say that also that is a place that are huge fans of AUKUS, 
huge advocates of orcas, you know, so they're not just chucking rocks Ooh. at orcas for the, the sake of it. So the, the, the eight deadly sins of ITAR, number one is outdated mindset. <laughs> so it's this fossilised relic that we seem to be wanting to impose well, you know, on our I, I worked on this. I was, I was the division head that put the last amendments through Parliament on this act, and I also negotiated the Australia-US Defence Trade Treaty. So I'm not as expert as Bill because I haven't spent my life doing it, but I've spent a considerable chunk of my time doing it. Mm-hmm. And the out, outmoded mindset comes from it takes four years to get something on the control list. It's a consensus thing with the international community that's part of it. It means it's always a backward-looking list by definition. But to me, the, the bigger mindset is we are trying to break down barriers to entry for new players in this space. If, if you want technological innovation, you've got to get new players into this space. This whole approach is about creating bigger barriers to entry. Well, that, I think that is a fundamental design issue with this approach and this legislation because why did AUKUS Pillar 2 come into being? It came into being because technologies like artificial intelligence, cyber, uncrewed systems, big data analysis, quantum technologies that have been developed in the civilian world and a bunch of them, AI, cyber, they have proliferated and drones have proliferated in the civilian world. But because of the barriers to doing business with our militaries, not just in Australia, but in the US and the UK, those applied technologies have not found their way into our militaries. And a big barrier to entry in the US is ITAR. So you're right, we are creating larger barriers to make sure that Pillar 2 can't happen because the problem that we already have, we are going to double down on. So we are we are voluntarily adopting a mindset that the US itself has recognised doesn't work, but there is such institutionalised inertia behind it, they can't break it down. So number two is universe, universality and non-materiality, which essentially is saying that those thousands and thousands of items on the DGSL, it applies to all of them, regardless of what they are, even if they're rifle designs that are now 80 years old. Mm, and how material it How material be. is that? Well, that brings me to something about the the draft law, which is the liability, the offences. Most of the offences are strict liability of offences. So it doesn't matter what your motives were, what you knew or what you didn't know. It's just, did that happen? Yeah. Now, did you talk to a Japanese person on this topic or were they at the conference you're at and you spoke? Yes. Well, you are going to jail for 10 years. Mm. These offences have prison terms well, so of 10 years. Those, those are sins three and four, extraterritoriality and non-discrimination. So it doesn't discriminate between, you know, how important that uh, technology was. And it also now applies with extraterritoriality. So that means if I have a conversation with, let's say, a Japanese person, and, and that was okay, I had a permit for that, but they then go home and they spread that information, I'm now liable for that, for something that occurs outside of Australia. So I seem to, I need perfect knowledge of the future. And that's uh, cardinal sin number eight here of unwarranted predictability. Ooh. So it assumes we can predict what's going to happen in the future. Well, so, you also need perfect knowledge of those you're interacting uh, interacting with. So you go to what's meant to be the Hunter Defence Conference, you're speaking to a room full of 200 people. What if one of them is not an Australian, UK or US citizen? 
you, you have to check all their paperwork before you open your mouth. Well, I think that gets us to concerns raised by the president of the Australian Academy of Science, Chenapati Jagadish, who raised this exact problem. So it says I can co- collaborate freely with the US and the UK which certainly has its benefits, but I would require an approved permit prior to collaborating with other foreign nationals. Without it, my collaborations would see me jailed. And so I think it just puts this dead hand now on Australians' willingness to collaborate with people. So interestingly, the explanatory memorandum says the financial implications associated with the implementation of this legislation will be included in the 24-25 budget. No, they won't. That means that's defence's costs to administer this. What about the costs that they're inflicting on everyone that is now subject to this? Well, if, if every researcher in Australia is now going, if I can go to jail, if I have a conversation with somebody without getting an approval beforehand, a permit before, I'm going to apply for a permit. So now Defence, the Export Control Office, is going to be swamped with hundreds of thousands of permits, which will take thousands and thousands of bureaucrats to administer, aside from the cost, as you say, Michael, on industry itself. You know, the funny thing about this is this, you'll hate this because it's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quote. Oh, but, here we go. But the the company that makes all these terrible robots, Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, its largest and most profitable division is its complaints division. And I think we can see that future for Defence Export Control Office. It's going to become very large and engage with fearful, unhappy people. Well, I think there is a there is a lot of fearfulness and unhappiness already. Now, it's possible we're all missing the point because we haven't been able to penetrate through the opaqueness of the explanatory memorandum. Well, I would like there memorandum, to be but an explanatory document that explains the explanatory memorandum. And in, maybe it could be written in something approaching English that is designed to be understood. Oh, there you go. There you go, Michael. God, complaining again. But So I, I did seek the wisdom of the crowd. So I actually went to LinkedIn and put a posted something there saying, am I missing the point or what is, is going a bad on thing? here? Yeah. And I would have to say, other than one enthusiastic young American who seemed to think, well, we do need security, otherwise we'll all be seduced by by Chinese prostitutes and give up all of our secrets. Other than that, young man, everybody had serious concerns. Well, let's hear a few of them. So, well, I got a a, a direct message back from an industry insider who says, yes, it's basically integrate with the US or die. And I spoke to many non-AUKUS companies that are being told they are too much of a risk to procure from because of AUKUS. Oh, well, that's the Tyler's answer then. So at least there's clarity there. So somebody else wrote, it certainly appears to be very rushed and a week for consultation on something as critical as this is not long enough to understand the true repercussions. Another one, talk about an own goal. This law, if it includes AI and ML, machine learning, would effectively make us beholden to the US and UK, who are actually our main Western competitors, <laughs> and we would not be able to compete in the global market. Okay, so we're now locked out of the global market for AI and machine learning. 
So another one saying, agreed, it's very flawed. The very vague interpretation of covered articles needs to be reconsidered or will restrict everything. I saw this firsthand when I worked in the, the US Joint Space Staff that the overregulated articles of space products meant the US lost their competitive market advantage. The US has been unable to rectify that problem. We stand to lose what little we've gained as well. Mm. And then a rather pithy one. ITAR, a nightmare shared is a nightmare doubled. Mm. And then somebody who was quite honest said, I'm probably being really stupid here, but isn't this all about setting up something like ITAR on steroids? And it's like, I don't think you're being really stupid here because the explanatory memorandum, in fact, says that. So, So, look, I, I absolutely understand if this new tightening of controls around sharing technology and information, and not just products, but services, if that was focused on Pillar 1 in AUKUS, the nuclear submarines, that has to happen. There will have to be a deeper, tighter set of security controls around that bubble of nuclear technology. And everybody agrees with that. But, But this is about everything everything well you and i michael both worked at aspie several years ago when a very good young researcher called alex josky published a number of pieces exposing the extent to which australian universities were bringing in graduate students and researchers from china who just happened to be members of the pla and australian researchers had in their labs pla officers working on things like explosives and a whole Ooh. bunch of other military technology. For peaceful purposes, I remember <laughs> and, one one PhD explosives and, expert who was being mentored in Australia so, told and, his and uh, at supervisor. And you wrote a number of things sort of shedding this, this informa- sharing this information. So we're not naive. We mm. do think there needs to be security awareness. We do believe there needs to be an export control regime. The the the, the heads of our various intelligence services have been pointing out in great detail the threat posed particularly by Absolutely. the People's Republic of China. Absolutely. So we're not saying don't have any export control re- no. regimes. But it is those eight deadly sins of where you are regulating absolutely everything regardless of materiality. Well, and the effect of having... I can hear the counter-argument. Well, look, I don't know what you're talking about. All they've got to do is apply for a permit. I'd be very happy to have that Japanese space expert employed in Gilmore Space or somewhere else. Very happy. Just apply for a permit. What's the problem? It reminds me of when I was in the public service and... There was a direction from government to reduce the number of public servants, probably to make room for more spending on consultants at the time. But anyway, the head of I think it was my department more band three public servants we mm. needed to free up some. Money well, that's for happened. That. The, the, the head of my department put an edict out saying all recruitment has to come through me. I will sign off all recruitment. And people said, but we really need to fill some key positions. And he said, I'm not stopping you in recruiting. All you've got to do is get permission from me. Do you know what happened? It stopped recruitment because the process of applying for approval or a permit was so onerous and you you were worried about it, you didn't do it. So that that is exactly what is going to happen here. Well, look, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are thinking, well, defence knows what it's doing. We, we should probably trust them on this important issue. I would simply refer back to our last podcast, Michael, where we talked about an internal review commissioned by the Secretary of the Department of Defence that concluded that it had essentially failed in its basic duty of 
of conducting a, a proper competition for the selection of the future frigate, and that it had provided very poor advice to the government on pretty much all aspects of that program and essentially gave itself an F for something that is core defence business. Mm. Yes, the Future Frigate Project is the second biggest project in defence history, so it's big, but it is core defence business. And by its own admission, defence admitted it got it completely wrong. My question is, is why do we think this is any better thought through why this piece of advice to government recommending Mm. this legislation is any better? Yeah, particularly basic research will show so many people that are credible in the US system see ITAR as a problem for their own national security and their own innovation. And to me, it's a driver that created the need for AUKUS Pillar 2. So this is a recipe for continued failure in getting new entrants supplying our militaries with technologies and systems from the civilian world. And it's going to make people turn away from wanting to work in the defence sector at a time when we want to bring new entrants into it. So the, the only question remaining for me is, if it's so bad, why are we doing it? So, And it, it does seem to me that it is a kind of quid pro quo. So the US is saying, well, you can come enter our system and come inside the US tent and be treated the same as the US. The quid pro quo is you cut yourselves off to everybody else. And if that is actually what is going on, it is not, I think, uh, a gesture of good faith from the United States that AUKUS is going to work well in Australia's interests. No, and I I really think there's a a deep failure of imagination here to think about the actual purpose of what we're doing. And I can almost see the superficial triumphalism of saying, see, we're in ITARs now. And I think that would be a moment to see damage to our national interests and also also to the alliance. So this, this needs to be changed. It needs to be comprehensively rethought from the ground up. And again, the people that should be involved in this thinking are not the people in the Defence Department. The people that need to be listened to here in co-designing are the people in some of the world's most successful tech companies here in the US and UK who do not want to touch working with Defence with a barge pole because of these very approaches. Well, I think this is something we definitely need to keep tracking. We'll put on links on uh, our webpage to Colin Clark's article that quotes uh, both Bill Greenwalt and Chenapati Jagadish. We'll put in a link to the legislation itself and the explanatory memorandum so people can look at it. According to Defence, submissions close today. I suspect, however, if people wanted to submit something, they'll probably keep taking them for a, a while. Well, I think they'll need a permit. They may need a permit to make a submission, we'll see. So I would urge uh, people to actually do a bit of research on this because it has the potential to, I think, fundamentally damage our defence industry for a very, very long time to come. Actually, what we've seen from the US is once you go down this path, you can't get off it. Mm. And that could be what we're doing to ourselves. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, Marcus. Well, let's bring this emergency episode to a close.